Well, I have in my possession my key ring here. And in my key ring, there is a very special key. It's a key that not many people in this church have. But if you have this key, this simple little key, you can get into any door in this church with this little key. So any door that is previously not able to, not able to get into with this key, this very special key, I don't even need to like make a big show of it or anything. It doesn't need to be that impressive. I just turn it, put it in there. If I can do that, turn it, and it opens the door with this very special key. In the Bible, this book, there is also a key. It is the most amazing key, if you let it speak to you, that has ever been given. This key, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, makes every promise in this book yes to you. It opens every door in this book to you. This key. Sadly, we know this key, but I'm not sure we really know this key. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you can stand... The title of this message is Part 2 of Preaching, the Gospel. And this key is the key to the preaching. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And in that little passage of Scripture, we find the key. I'm going to begin in verse 1. If you remember last week, we talked about the first part of preaching. There's two types of preaching. One is empty preaching, preaching that looks good, it's supposed to be impressive, but it's not that effective. It's called empty preaching. This week, we're going to talk about really not just the powerful side to preaching, but what makes it so powerful. And Paul says, look at verse 1, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's saying, like last week, it's not lofty speech, eloquence, cleverness, that I can turn a phrase and make you smile or cry. It has nothing to do with that. Verse 3 says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. He said he in himself wasn't that impressive. This message actually is scary because it can divide families. It can make people furious. And um, some people just won't like you. That's why there's some trembling. Verse 4, he said, In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. He's not going to use this highfalutin argument to prove this point to get you to mentally understand but it comes with God's authentic spirit work that changes lives. And in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, so that you're not boasting in men, but you're boasting in God. So last week he said, where should we boast? What should we boast about? We boast about verse 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 is simple. It's easy to understand, and here's what it says. For I decided, Paul's saying in my preaching, 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So this is what we're going to talk about today. You might be seated. If you could. And my question that I'm going to answer is, why does Paul want to make this the issue and how can you talk about Jesus Christ and Him crucified all the time? Doesn't it get boring? Doesn't, like Derek said, after a while, don't you just say, I've heard that a hundred times. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, by Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he's saying, look, this, first of all, above everything, actually happened. April 3rd, 33 A.D., this actually happened. This was a real event. And this event changed history. It tangibly changed history. Let me give an example. Less than a month ago, a man by the name of George Floyd was arrested. A police officer took his knee, put it on his neck, and kept it there. And the coroner said because of that, he was asphyxiated. He died. Because of that singular event in Minneapolis, our nation has exploded, some out of righteous outrage, to say, we've had enough, some out of just, I just want to break something. But because of that singular event, because that actually happened in a city in this country, our world's on fire. Our world's on fire. But there was an event that actually happened, historically speaking, that is on a much grander scale than what happened to George Floyd. And it was so shocking, it woke up the world. It was so shocking, it brought you to church here today. It's still having ripple effects. It happened in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the center of the world at that time. I still think it's the center of the world. It's known as the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. All roads go through Jerusalem. All the nations still to this day go there. It's amazing. Second thing that happened is a man was sent to that city. This man was named Jesus. He was from the town of Nazareth. Jesus was quite amazing. He um, was... It's actually recorded in history. He could make people who were lame walk again, blind see again. He multiplied fishes and loaves so people could eat bread when they had nothing. He was amazing. People loved him. The problem, however, is on April 3rd, 33 AD, in the center of Jerusalem, on a hill, he was, I like to use the word murdered. He was tortured, humiliated, spit on, put thorns stuck in his skull so blood would pour out. Nails were pounded in his palms and in his feet by wicked men. You know what God says about him? That that's his son on the cross. His one and only son. The son that he loves. The son, mind you, that the Bible says created the world. So the man that was killed is the man who made you. That's the gospel. So we believe he was 
hung up in front of the world. He died, was buried three days, and then eventually he rose up from, from the grave. He predicted it. So that's the gospel. Second thing about the gospels, it says in Scripture, God designed it. It was God's plan, according to 1 Peter, before the world was made. He was foreknown. That means God planned it out before the foundations of the world were set. So before Jupiter was made, before the galaxies were made, God had put in place a plan where he'd send his son to die for you. So it's got to be pretty important. But here's the third thing about this. The results of the cross are breathtaking. They're breathtaking. They're overwhelming. Often when people read verse 2, so take a look at how verse 2 is written. Often when people read verse 2, they read it like this. Right aside to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So all Paul's going to talk about is his death, being buried three days and rising again. So every time Paul talks, is that all he's going to talk about? Doesn't that get old? I mean, is that all he's going to talk about? Well, if you keep reading 1 Corinthians, he talks about bad marriages, sexual immorality, don't have lawsuits among believers. He talks about all kinds of things. So it's not just the cross. Oh, I know what it means. You know what some preachers do? They will say this, all roads lead to the cross. So what they do is they say, well, I'll talk about marriage. Let's say we talk about marriage for 25 minutes. At the end of my message, I'm going to go to the cross where Jesus died, was buried, and rose up from the grave as if, you know, those first 25 minutes really don't matter. It's that last five minutes. I'm just going to use that phrase. Did you know that Jesus died? was buried, and he rose up from the grave, as if it's a magic formula. So, for instance, some people use a lot of scriptures as a magic formula. You know the Our Father? The Our Father goes like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then you take a deep breath. And some people keep praying, as if if I say those words, I've prayed magic. No, the Our Father is an explanation of reality. I begin by saying, Our Father, He actually lives, and He lives in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May you be praised above everything. So Jesus gives us the Our Father to set our minds right and to see reality as it is. That's what Jesus Christ and Him crucified is. It has nothing to do with the magic formula. It's how we see the world. One person says it like this. Because of the cross, every benefit of the Bible, let me go forward, every benefit of the Bible, every promise in the Bible, every blessing, every blessing you have has been bought for you. It's blood bought. Everything goes back to the cross. The cross has opened up every door for me. It's the foundation of everything. It's the paint that draws the mural of my salvation. It's amazing. One writer says, the cross finally allows me to see God fully. I'm able now to see all of his beauty. I'm able to see the path to knowing him. I'm able to see how I can be conformed into his image and likeness 
It maximizes my joy every day. It's the cross that now gives meaning to everything. When you came in here, you were given a sheet. It's called the cross applied. I'm going to ask you to bring that out. I'm going to just show you 11 ways this happens. I'm telling you there's millions of ways if I understand the cross correctly, it will change my life. Like so for instance in marriage, when my wife makes me mad, do I retaliate? Do I just unload? Do I just quit loving her? No, because on the cross, Jesus, it says in 1 Peter, did not retaliate. Because Jesus didn't retaliate, I'm not supposed to. Everything goes back to the cross. If you're watching online, this is also on resource page, this cross applied. So you can go online. That's just a, see, I'm aware, Mark, of I'm online. But I want to show you guys what the cross means theologically for you. And I think the implications are going to blow you away. The cross isn't just, do you know Jesus died, was buried for three days and rose again? Oh, that's nice. It's true, but it's changed reality. Number one is it gave us a means for salvation. This is the one we usually talk about. What is salvation? Salvation means I am rescued from destruction. That's what it means. So, because I'm sinning, because I'm a sinner, because I can't stop sinning, it's sinking me underneath the condemnation of God's ocean. The cross has been thrown to me as a life preserver to save my life, so I won't go to condemnation. It is amazing. This one should be enough. I was talking to my son yesterday. When you really believe this, like when you really believe this, you should change. You should be thankful every single day, every breath you take. But this has amazing implications for the person who knows they are guilty and deserves condemnation. Did you know the cross is God's wrath that has been expended on someone else and not me? So if you are the person who knows you're guilty, who doesn't know how you're going to escape, in the way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert, knows who were bit, looked at it and were healed, look to Christ, you'll be healed forever. I could stop on this forever, but let's keep going because it gets better. The cross is also substitution. I have a picture of Superman taking bullets. He's taking bullets for the people behind him, and because he took the bullets for the people behind him, they will be saved. He took their place. On the cross, God's wrath was aimed at me. There is no way I can take it. And so Jesus went to the cross for me in place of me. It's amazing. Like David fighting Goliath for the nation Israel, one man fighting the, fighting the greatest warrior ever, and David won for Israel, Jesus fought sin for me, for me personally. This has amazing implications for the person who thinks they can never please God on their own. I need help. You're right. You can't. A better person has come along to take your place. This, quite frankly, is why I hate 
work salvation. Because what it does, when I think I can do good things, I can dress up and look Christian, it absolutely ignores the fact that I couldn't, that only one person could. He's Superman. He's amazing. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The righteous died for the unrighteous. I have the next one in the center of the cross because I would say it's the main point of the cross. It's number three. I put it right in the center because if anything, the cross screams that God loves you. He loves you. He gave his son for you. How do I know he gave his son for me? April 3rd, 33 AD, the son himself died. I mean, it really happened. It was tangible. I want you to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. I really think you should memorize this verse. I think you need to know this verse. If you're a Christian, Let this, wake up to this verse every single day. Here's what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything, all things? He didn't spare Jesus. He cashed all of his money in. So your little requests are nothing compared to what he's already done for you. He loves you. So what are the implications? The implications, the amazing implications, are for the person who says, I don't feel wanted, I don't feel cared for, I feel forgotten. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. God sent his son for you. Stop the pity party. That's my main message today. Stop the pity party. God in real time, showed how much he loved you. He sent Christ. And if you say, yeah, but I need more, then you're not living by faith. You really don't believe that this was the greatest thing ever done. The fourth thing, and this is a very interesting one. This is a heavy-duty theological term, but you need to know it. It's called justification. That means before Jesus went on the cross, the whole world was found guilty in the courts of God. In heaven's courts, God, as the judge, according to Psalm 50, holds everybody guilty. And because of guilt, the wages of that guilt is death, eternal death. So all of us, before the courts of God, were held guilty. So when Jesus took our place as a substitution, he was paying our court fine. Because Jesus took my spot and justice was accomplished, justice means he paid the whole debt of the guilt. The fine has been canceled. The court date is closed. God the judge takes the gavel and declares those who believe in this day righteous. Boom. All right, case closed. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So the implications, the amazing implications are for the person who says, if I sin again, will I lose my standing? 
There's people out there that are racked by guilt because they sin again. And when they sin again, they're like, oh, I'm condemned again? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have. We possess right now peace with God. You can say it like this. If the case is closed, there is no double jeopardy in God's court. That's why it says, if I confess my sin, God is faithful and he's just. His justice has been paid. The fifth one. This is the idea that when Jesus shed his blood, it was a payment for your soul. He bought you out of slavery. He bought you back. He bought you. He wants you. He saw you on the auction block of slavery, and he said, I'll pay for him. How much? Well, according to Psalm, there's no payment enough. But according to 1 Peter, his blood was. Because we were sold to sin, we needed a ransom payment to be owned by God again. 1 Corinthians 6 says Jesus' blood was enough. The implications, these amazing implications, are for the person who feels worthless and insignificant. My life means nothing. I'm worthless. You're worthless. Didn't Jesus just buy you? Yeah, but I feel worthless. Stop feeling. Stop letting feeling be the dictation of reality. Jesus actually died April 3rd, 33 AD. He bought you. You're worth everything to him. This next one's amazing. They're kind of all amazing. Regeneration. When Jesus died, he, he kind of destroyed the old building of me. My old man died so I could be rebuilt by the Spirit. It's called regeneration. I'm made brand new. It's a metaphor like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. I, in Christ, died. I was crucified in Christ. I no longer live, but it's not me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. It's Galatians 2.20. So the Spirit of God is setting about to make me brand new. The first work was destroyed. The old man was killed. And now a new creation is being built. So the implications, these amazing implications are for the person who said, you know how I ruined my life with so much sin in the past? I've ruined it. So have I. So have I. But I died. And now I'm being rebuilt. And it's the Spirit of God who's in me, who wants to make me new. This is amazing. Too many Christians are still stuck in this thing. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Yeah, you were. You were. Take a deep breath. We're halfway through. Is this making any sense? Okay. Sometimes it's hard to see through the masks. Number seven. Big word time. I love these words. These words are important. This is Bob Ford's favorite word. Propitiation. Propitiation means paid in full. 
all of the sins of mankind for all eternity on the cross were paid in full. When Jesus rose up from the grave, it was a receipt that proved to us that God stamped all of our debt and said, it's paid, it's finished, it's over. The bill has been torn up, you owe nothing. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, it says, once Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In Jewish language, the Old Testament priests never sat down because sacrifices never were finished. In the New Testament, Jesus was the great high priest who offered his body as a sacrifice and sat down. He sat down because, oh, he's done. Do you understand? So the implications are for the person who keeps trying to keep God happy. Oh, I got to keep trying to keep God happy. Wait a minute. If it's paid in full, he's fine. It's done. That anger you're always trying to assuage is called wrath. And Jesus drank it down to the bottom. So quit trying to be perfect. <laughs> quit trying to keep God, make God happy. He sees his son in you when you believe in him. This is another big word, but a, a good word. Reconciliation. Remember growing up, sometimes you'd say it really holy. Reconciliation. You know what reconciliation means? It means there was a wall between us and God, and he tore the wall down. It's ripped down. And now God goes across the wall and extends his hand of fellowship. I want you in my life. How did he do this? When Jesus came bodily, April 3rd, 33 AD, his body was torn so the wall could be torn down. So he's at peace. This has amazing implications for the person who doesn't think God likes them. God doesn't like me. God doesn't like you. His son died. So he could have peace with you. Peace means fellowship. He will. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody lets me in, I'm going to come in and make my home in him. He doesn't like you. Man, he did everything he could to show how much he likes you. Again, stop the pity party. The next word is another good one. It's another good one. It's called atonement. Atonement means complete transfer. In the Old Testament, the Jews would sacrifice a little lamb, little white lamb. And here's a little white lamb. The priest would take his hand, put it on the head of the lamb, and the idea is that the guilt of men, which the priest represents, the guilt would transfer into the lamb, and the lamb's innocence would transfer into the priest. Then he would kill the lamb because the lamb died for me and gave me innocence. That's why the Levitical law says you must offer a lamb without blemish. He's perfect. That's why when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, Behold, you know who that is? The Lamb of God. 
And you know what he does? He takes away the sin of the world. Not only does he take away the sin of the world, but he gives us his righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We become the spotless lambs. What's amazing is all of the work Jesus did and when he lived is attributed to me. It's amazing. So you could say it like this. These amazing implications are for the person who never feels fully good. I'll never be good, so why try to be good? I'm worthless. Because his righteousness has been given to you. It's called imputation. You have his life in you now. It's amazing to me. And then not only that, Jared, I got another hour. Not only that, <laughs> we are adopted into his family. God makes you his child. He, he allowed his child to die so you could be his child. You are part of his family. I am his and I belong. 1 John 3, 1 says this, Behold, saying, listen, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. He's saying, I can't believe this. I'm amazed at this. Behold, what manner of love. It's overwhelming. Do you remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son was a kid who ran away. He left his inheritance, left the family, then he run, comes back home, the father runs to him, and he clothes them. He gives them a brand new robe of white righteousness. But he also gives them a ring. And that ring, in the Roman culture, means he is now my son and will forever be my son. The implications are amazing for the person who feels like they don't belong anywhere. I'm all alone. No, you're not. You're part of the family of God. Too many people are like, I'm, I'm on the outside. I'm not wanted. I'm, I'm, one of an, I'm an oddball. No, you're part of the family of God. You are in. Start inviting people in. You be the one that makes contact to the rest of the family of God. And then the next one is victory. The heavenly armies... With Jesus as the Lord, that means the captain of the armies, defeated the hordes of demons and their evil influence at the cross. According to Colossians, they were humiliated. Their power was taken away. It's interesting. I think what happened at the cross is Jesus, he, uh, he trapped Satan. Satan had his chance. I'm going to kill him. But in the death of Jesus was the death of Satan's power. He did what's called the great reversal. It's like a wrestling match. Jesus made it seem like he's going to be pinned, and then he flipped him on the cross. So the implications are for those of you who feel oppressed, always overcome by evil, that you are losing your mind and you're losing your mental grip. And when you realize greater is he who lives in me now than he who's in the world, which is Satan, his horde of demons, I can regain my mind, my power, my strength. Some people just 
believe I, I, I'm, I'm helpless. You're not helpless. The Spirit of God is alive in you. Live, it says, draw near to God and Satan will flee. That's James 4. These are only 11. I only gave you 11. But what you need to do is study these, live by these. I had a conversation with my son yesterday and I said, truthfully, I really do believe above everything that this event actually happened. Not only did it actually happen, but I will someday meet face-to-face -face Jesus. I don't see him right now. I don't necessarily receive all the benefits right now, but I believe I will. And when I see him, I believe he's going to be greater than anything you could ever imagine. There's a story of this family. They were avid skiers, but they weren't that rich. They liked to go to a local ski hill, but it was a little bunny hill, kind of like Cannonsburg, and they always wanted to go someplace really nice. Well, the ski hill that they went skiing on had this lottery where if whoever won the lottery would win a ticket to the most expensive Swiss chalet underneath the Matterhorn in Switzerland, and they'd get a two-week ski pass, and all expenses paid. So they signed up, they had the drawing, and they won. The family won. So they had a plane ticket to Switzerland. They were given, they went into the main lodge, and the main lodge gave them a ski pass so they could ride all the lifts for free for two weeks. And then they went to their cabin. And it was underneath, it was actually nestled underneath some large pine trees with snow on the top of them. And it was underneath the giant Matterhorn. And they're like, this is incredible. They walk in with the key. They open it up, and it was this big, expansive room. It had a window that could see the whole skyline. It had a nice bathroom, but they're looking around and it just seemed to have a pull-out bed and a pull-out couch. I mean, nice, but supposed to be the best place in all of Switzerland. So they went skiing, they enjoyed it. The next day, the maid comes in with a whole stack of towels, goes into the bathroom, changes them. Then she goes over to the far right side of the room, which had two big doors, and she noticed they were locked. And she said, have you guys opened this yet? Did you use your key? And they're like, oh, it looks like just some storage room. She goes, no. Have you opened those two doors? She said, no. Give me your key. They opened those two doors, and when they opened up the doors, inside was a swimming pool, a master bedroom with a gigantic entertainment system, a kitchen that was stocked full of food. They had a workout room, a video room, and she said, you guys, you have all of this. What are you doing just sitting in the front room? I didn't know. Often all we do as Christians is we just, yeah, Jesus died, rose again on the third day, and I'm saved. That's great. That is great, but that's only the front room. Open up the doors. You have everything else. Everything else. So you could say it like this. Do you even realize what you have in Christ? It's incredible. Get to know it. Get to know what happened on that day, April 3rd, 33 AD.